My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. And along with Reagan, who's my wife and also an associate pastor here, we get to co-pastor this worship community that we call Thrive. And uh, we are glad that you're with us this morning as we kind of begin this summer season. Students are out of school. Is everybody done with school now? Is anybody not done with school? Oh my gosh, we got Gage, I'm so sorry. On behalf of this Christian community, we are praying for you. We uplift you in the name of Jesus. That is, that is your cross to bear. I'm so sorry. Um, I am glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here uh, as we continue in a sermon series this morning called Recover. And if you've not been with us, what we've been doing is walking through the 12 steps. And maybe you hear that and you think, 12 steps, like that's, that's for folks that are battling addiction and recovering from addiction. And, um, and what I would challenge you to do is go back and listen to some of these messages because the point we've been driving home is that all of us are in need of recovery. And all of us through our Christian faith and through our walk with Christ are in recovery. And so this has been a series that's been brilliant for my soul just personally. I think it's been fantastic for us as a church community to be aligned in this pursuit of just some of the foundational elements of our faith, why we walk with Jesus, why we need God in our lives, why we are not enough on our own. And so today we are, I'm going to grab a bar stool. Today we are uh, continuing and we're getting close to the end. Today is steps 10 and 11. And, uh, and step 10 says this, so as part of the 12 steps, one thing you do is you, make a moral, you take a moral inventory. Uh, you basically uh, create a list of all the ways in which uh, you're broken in need of healing, and then you're supposed to address it. But then step 10 says, we continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. We continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. And then step 11 says we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. So these are the two steps that kind of bring it home on a personal level, and what we'll find is next week, step 12, is we carry that message out uh, to the world around us. So this is really uh, driving it home on the personal level in the 12 steps. And one of the scripture references uh, that I've seen in several of the resources I've looked at for these steps is uh, a passage from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians is a letter of Paul uh, that he wrote from prison to a church in a town called Colossae. Uh, And he sent that letter with another letter called Philemon, and I'll say more about that in a little bit. Um, But Colossians chapter 3, the more I read uh, this chapter of Scripture this week, the more I realized that it's really the entire chapter captures these two uh, steps in a really powerful way. And so what I want us to do today is is kind of almost like a Bible study. I want us just to walk through chapter 3 of Colossians. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so buckle up. Uh, I'm going to do my best to get us through this as quickly as possible. And um, and, and we're going to stop along the way and and see how um, this chapter in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae um, is, is powerful for us on a personal level, but, but even more than that. And we'll understand why by the end of the day, I hope. So let's pray before we read um, our scripture here in Thrive and Lover's Lane. We believe that, that this book is, is a living text, and we invite the Holy Spirit uh, to bring it to life for us this morning and to be a part of this uh, sacred art of reading scripture. So let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for a space that we can come and we can breathe. Maybe we just dropped our kids off in childcare. 
Maybe they're sitting next to us, but their attention is on a, on a coloring sheet. Maybe we had the best week of our lives, or maybe we had the hardest week of our lives. Or maybe we had a week that just kind of felt meaningless. God, as we continue in this conversation of recovery, I just ask that you would speak through your servant Paul and speak through the message that I'm about to bring. Let it be your words, not only for a church in Colossae 2,000 years ago, but for a people here at Lover's Lane right now. Allow these words to leap out of our Bibles, off the screens, into our hearts. They might change the way that we live. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we begin in chapter 3 in verse 1. And Paul says this. He says, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So let's stop there. Now, if you know me, or maybe you don't know this about me, um, I've got really bad eyesight. I've got really bad eyesight. I normally wear glasses. I've got contacts in. Um, and, uh, and I've worn glasses since I was four years old because back then I don't think you wore glasses if you were younger than that. They didn't have like the little tiny kid glasses, at least uh, I didn't. Uh, but my eyes are really bad if I don't wear anything corrective, like I'm legally blind, right? It's really, really bad. So I've been to the optometrist a lot uh, in my life. In fact, I, <clears throat> I married uh, uh, a, the daughter of an optometrist, but he retired like a year after we got married, and so I got exactly one pair of glasses out of this relationship, which is not fair, if you ask me. Um, so if you've been to the optometrist, if, if you were like me and you grew up and, and your, your eyes were not great, or even if your eyes got worse as an adult, you'll know what I'm about to say, and that is uh, there's this incredible feeling when you walk out of the optometrist office with your new pair of glasses, with your new set of contacts, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Y'all, pause button real quick. For like the last three months, every morning, my throat gets like phlegmy at 9.30, like every morning. Like, I don't know if the devil is trying to bring me down with like the most annoying little body dysfunction right now, but I promise I don't have like ongoing bronchitis that I'm spreading every Sunday here. I know you're, if you come like each week or every other week, you're like, this guy is coughing every Sunday. I don't know what's going on. And I'll be fine in an hour, and it's super annoying. Okay. So if you go to the optometrist, if you've got those new pair of glasses, that new set of contacts, you walk out, and if you're like me, you look up, and you see a tree, and you realize there are leaves, right? Have you ever, you know what I'm talking about, folks, who get the new pair of glasses? You're like, there, did y'all know there are le individual leaves on these trees? I just assumed it was just like a green thing, right? But no, there's like thousands of these bad boys, and they're everywhere, and they look so cool. Like leaves are immediately like the coolest thing to look at when you've got that new set of glasses. And it got me thinking this week about glasses because it got me thinking about clarity, and the way that we see our lives in the world. And clarity is one of those things that I don't think you know you didn't have it until you've got it. Does that make sense? 
Clarity is one of those things that you don't know you didn't have it until you've got it. It's like, it's like not realizing that you're seeing just sort of green and then getting the new set of glasses and going, oh my gosh, leaves, I forgot. There are leaves on trees. This is incredible. I can see road signs again. That's really cool. Um, when I hear Paul talking to the church in Colossae, I hear him talking about gaining clarity. And that's what I hear in step 11. And it says, we, we seek through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. It, it, it gives me this image of, of seeing through a new set of eyes, as Paul talks about setting our minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth, for you've died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's like when we come to faith and we take that seriously, we are setting aside the way that we've understood the world in our life because the reality is that the way that we understood it was a deeply broken way. The way that we understood our lives was this deeply broken way and, and by coming to faith in Christ and by beginning to walk with God and taking that seriously, uh, we begin to see our life completely differently because we're looking at it with a kingdom vision. We're looking at it with this vision that comes not from ourselves but from our Savior. And the way that we get there is through this, this, this act of prayer and meditation, as step 11 says. And I want to talk about prayer for just a second before we keep going. Um, the book Breathing Underwater by Richard Rohr, and I promise if I say this enough, you guys are going to finally buy it and read it. It's so daggum good. Um, he talks about prayer in relation to steps 10 and 11, and he says that it, it's through prayer that we really kind of shift the way that we think, because I think a lot of us approach prayer thinking that it's about thinking, right? Thinking about God, going and turning to God in our minds and just thinking about God a lot. And, and the point that Richard Rohr makes is that's not what it means to go to God in prayer, he says that naturally we're kind of wired to, to have our thoughts come from what he calls a calculating mind. That makes sense to me. I've, I've got a calculating mind where I'm, I'm constantly thinking about the things in my life and I'm trying to analyze them. I'm trying to figure them out. And, and I can take that so far where I'm overanalyzing and thinking too much. And I can bring that kind of a brain into a relationship with God. And I can, and I can just try to think my faith to death, right? Um, and that's never going to lead me to the prayer life that I'm looking for because that's not what it's really about. Richard Rohr says that through prayer we move from a, from a calculating mind to a contemplative mind. What he means by that is a contemplative mind is a mind that goes to prayer and allows your, your brain to breathe a little bit. Malcolm Gladwell says it's thinking without thinking. That's another way to put it. You're allowing your brain to breathe a little bit. You're allowing your, your mind to wander even, to, to be open and, and to be receptive to whatever it is that God would be willing to give to you in that moment. That's a really hard shift for some of us to make. In fact, you may be listening to this going, I, man, I'm just not there. I'm, I'm not a good meditator. And I would say I'm not either, and that's why it's so important for me to make this a part of my regular life. Step 11 says constant our conscious contact with God, praying for us to always have knowledge of his will, that requires um, intentionality. That requires setting aside time daily to allow your mind to switch from being calculating to contemplative. To find God in prayer and to allow your mind to breathe a little bit. And to trust that you can pick your life back up in a moment, but for a second, can you just let everything else grow quiet for a moment and just connect with God? You know, we're going to come to the communion table in just a, in just a second, and, and the way we approach is with our hands kind of like this, and that's the mental image I use when I'm in prayer. 
I'm not reaching out and trying to grab God. I'm just simply sitting and trying to be open to God. I'm trying to free myself of whatever else it is that I'm holding so that I can receive whatever grace it is that God needs to give me through that moment of prayer. So maybe the thing you take away from, from this week is, is getting serious about a prayer life. And by that, I don't mean, you know, trying to sit down and, and have this rigid schedule and, and here's, the, here's my laundry list of items I need to bring to God this week. No, I'm just saying find some time. And, and if it's good to schedule it, great. But find some time to just let your mind breathe and to be with God and allow God to switch that brain from a calculating mind to a contemplative mind. So let's keep going. Paul says this. This is a fun section, just buckle up. But put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once lived but when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's stop there. I always love when Paul gets fun, right? You know, Paul can only be nice for so long, and then he has to remind us how bad we are, right? Um, Paul, Paul lives in a very kind of black and white world. And, uh, uh, but I want to talk about this section here, because I think there are times when we read pieces of Scripture like this, and it's really hard to digest, and so we just kind of toss it aside, and we go, well, I don't want to deal with that. Um, but we need to, because we can't get to what Paul's about to say if we don't really understand what he's saying here. He says, um, he says this bit about the wrath of God. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet for some of us this phrase jumped off the screen. Yeah? The wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Um, so I'm willing to bet that there are several of us in the room who, who have had a bad church experience at some point in our lives. Yeah? If you've had a bad church experience, say amen. And then I'm going to take it, I'm going to hazard a guess, and I'm going to say maybe one of those bad churches' experiences, um, maybe there was a preacher in that church that really loved to preach about the wrath of God. If that was true for you, say amen. Yeah, yeah, all right. So I'm a pretty good detective. Um, the wrath of God is one of the most critically misunderstood and mistaught concepts in Scripture because it's usually used to bully people. The wrath of God is coming on those people. God is, is angry, and he's, and he's feeling vengeful, and he's feeling wrathful, and so God's going to punish, and it's usually a select group of people, right? It's whoever we're choosing to scapegoat that morning. And that is not at all what the wrath of God is about. The wrath of God has nothing to do with punishing people. Let's get that really clear. Going back to the Old Testament, the wrath of God is this, is this idea that God is so good and so perfect that, that God created a world and a cosmos that was meant to be perfect and good, and not just good, but very good. 
And then something went wrong in that world, and, 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 and brokenness and evil entered in, through, in part through our own brokenness. And, 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 and then God looks down and he sees, this isn't what I created. This is not what I intended. And the wrath of God is that feeling in God, that, that anger that says, I didn't design this to be this way. I will not allow brokenness and evil and imperfection to exist in my kingdom. That will not be the final story. So the wrath of God is not an anger at people. It's an anger at the people having to wallow in brokenness. And God's saying, I will not be satisfied until every person is healed and whole and my creation is perfect and good again. The wrath of God is not bad news. The wrath of God is actually really good news. It's the news that God cares a lot. And God is not content to watch you live the rest of your eternity in brokenness and pain. The wrath of God is willing to go to the cross and to dive headfirst into hell to correct that. That's the wrath of God. So when we preach the wrath of God and I hear preachers say that it's about God being mad at people, I want to go, did you miss Easter? Did you skip over that whole story of of God coming down and, and allowing God's self to be nailed to a cross out of, as the Gospel of John says, not condemnation for the world, but out of love for the world? That's the wrath of God. It's a God who cares. And so Paul says that God cares so much that God wants us to not only not exist in brokenness for eternity, God wants us to experience healing and being made perfect in love for eternity, but God wants that for us now. God doesn't want us to live another moment of this life thinking that brokenness is all we'll ever know. God wants us to have a taste of heaven here on this earth, and and God's saying, these things with my love are conquerable. You don't have to accept that this is, just who, this is just your reality for the rest of your life. You can make strides because I care and because I want you to be good. I want you to be exactly who I created you to be. See, here's what's interesting is some of these things that Paul's naming, these idolatrous uh, sins, the impurity, passion, evil, desire, greed. Um, Paul's writing to a community in Colossae which is experiencing some pressure, some cultural pressure from two different groups. Uh, One is is sort of the Roman culture that's this uh, polytheistic uh, mythology of, you know, you got Hermes and Aphrodite and these different gods that represent some of the things that he's naming here. And it's this, it's this faith system that's all about me and, and how if I can do the right things, then these gods will bless me and make my life better in these different areas. I'll get more money and I'll get more love and I'll get more friends and I'll get more victory. And that's what the faith system of the Roman culture was really around. And Paul's saying that's, that, is, that is not what God has desired for you, a life that's narcissistic and totally self-oriented. And then there's also the, the, the Jewish culture, uh, the prevailing Jewish culture, I should say, of the religious leaders at the time, um, and it's this, it's this culture of, of isolation and excu- exclusion, right? It's that, you know, we're the people that God loves, and we've got it figured out, and we're going to keep these certain set of rules, and if you can't keep these rules, then you're out, and, 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 and you're not in. And, and so the church in Colossae was feeling pressured to either be a church that was totally just, you know, self-oriented and, and, and off the rails in that direction, or this church that was so exclusionary 
military and, and so wrapped up in, in, in keeping rules and, and, and making sure people knew who was in and who was out. And Paul's saying neither of those are, are the answer. God wants better for you than just a life that's about you and a life that's narcissistic. And God also is building a kingdom that is not about exclusion. Did you notice how Paul ends this passage? Isn't it interesting that through working on our own personal recovery, we can come to see each other as equals? Because when we realize that we all have brokenness that we need to work on today, that we're not waiting until eternity for this being made perfect in love, that we're working on this stuff today. When we begin to work on that and we take that seriously, then we begin to see a world where there is no Greek or Jew, where there is no circumcised or uncircumcised, where there is no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. It's the art of being individually in recovery and naming that and acknowledging that that allows us to then see everybody around us truly as equals because we all know that we're all working on our stuff. No matter where we are in our lives, all of us are working on our brokenness. All of us need to ask God in because the person we're trying to become is not some narcissistic version of ourselves, but it's Jesus. And Jesus is available to everybody. And so then Paul goes on and, and he begins to cast this vision of what a community like that could look like. So as, as much as Paul brings us low, like a good preacher, he brings us high. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's a lofty goal. This is the vision for the kind of community that Paul sees the Christian community being. This is, this is, this is the, the, the God-sized dream and vision for what a faithful Christian community looks like. And he writes this knowing he lives in the real world. Trust me, Paul's in prison. He knows that there's brokenness. He's writing to church after church that's experiencing dysfunction and disorder. He knows that this is not the expectation for today but the hope for tomorrow, Right? But gosh, doesn't that sound like a community you want to live in? Imagine if we could live in a community where people are clothed in compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Imagine if you could live in a community that could bear with you even when you are imperfect and showing that in spades. Imagine if we could live in a community that put love first and tried to have peace with one another so that we could have not uniformity but unity. Imagine if we could be a part of a community that's just thankful, thankful for each and every day, thankful for the blessings of God, thankful in the way that we sing. Imagine if we could be a part of a community that keeps Christ central to everything. I mean, that, that's the kind of community I want to live in. That's the kind of church that I think God is trying to build here at Lover's Lane. I see bits of that. Do you see pieces of what Paul just said here? I do. And yet I also read this and I'm like, man, we got work to do. Because I'm a pastor. 
And I know we got broken folks in here, and I'm one of the biggest ones, right? But this is something worth working towards. But what this really is, is it's a vision of a church, of a community that's in recovery. It's a vision for a church that takes its brokenness seriously and is working on that. A church that's working the steps, not just as individuals, but as a community of faith. This is the kind of a vision that we need. I think we need it today even more than 2,000 years ago. Because I think we have the same pressures today that they did in Colossae. I think we've got a cultural pressure that says life should be about you and your narcissism and your self-service. Do you all hear that? Do you hear that in your lives? I hear that all the time. That is, that is hard not to hear. But then I think we also have a pressure to isolate and to pull back and to become a, a small sect of people who are about who's in and who's out. And that's never been God's vision. That's a vision of a church I want to be a part of. So then we get to the end of this chapter. And I want to talk about the end. And we're getting to the end of my time. But Lord, this is one of those ones that, again, you can read and go, nah, don't want to deal with that. But I think that Paul says it for a reason. And I think there's a really beautiful way that we can end chapter 3 today. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Stay with me. Husbands. Just, I, I warned you. Don't say I didn't warn you. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fair, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. Oh boy. Let's unpack that bad boy, right? So this is one of those passages of Scripture that has been used to greatly harm people throughout history. Right? This is one of those passages that's been used uh, to tell uh, abused wives to go back to their husbands. This is a passage that's been, that was used to justify slavery and continues to be used to justify slavery throughout the world. Uh, this is a passage that, if you take one verse out of its context, can do a whole lot of damage. But it's one of the most important passages in Paul's writings because if you understand the world that Paul is living in and what he is saying, he is asking us to radically rethink our existence. Paul's living in and writing to a community who the image for a household for them, he's talking about basically how we live our lives in our household. The image for a household was this Roman household. The Roman household had the, the patriarch, the father of the family, up at the top, and everybody else existed to serve him. He was their master, their little king. He was, for all intents and purposes, their god. And Paul is completely challenging that and bringing the patriarch down onto the ground floor with everybody else. He says, yes, wives, you should, you should submit to your husbands, but husbands, you should submit in the same way to your wife because neither of you is really in charge. God is. So he's promoting this dual submission marriage, a marriage of equality 2,000 years ago, right? Um, he says, children, you should obey your parents, um, but parents, you should encourage your children. And that doesn't sound like a radical notion, but this is like Dr. Spock, 
right? I mean, this is like a radical parenting. Wait, we should encourage our kids? You know, like that was a big deal in those days. And then we get to this line about slaves obey your masters. Let me explain that real quick. Um, What he's saying is, slaves, you are a part of this household, and you do your work for this, this man, for this master in your household, not because you're afraid of what he's going to do, but because this whole household is agreeing to serve God. This is part of the world that Paul's living in. But, and he, don't miss this, Paul is not uplifting slavery as a gold standard for how people should be treated. He's also saying, masters, the way that you treat your slaves, you will be held to account Because in those days, to have a slave was to have a piece of property, right? That's what slavery is. It's dehumanizing, it's degrading. And Paul is saying as clearly as he can, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you are to see the people around you as human beings. And you are to treat them as such, with kindness and with gentleness and respect. And he takes it a step further. If you want to think, if you didn't know that Paul was not on board with slavery as a concept, get this. The chapter ends, we didn't read this part, but it ends in the next chapter, the letter does, with him talking about a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave who had run away from his master named Philemon. You might recognize that name. It's the name of another letter in uh, the New Testament. And Philemon uh, was looking for his slave. As you can imagine, a runaway slave was facing a very harsh penalty, likely death. Well, Onesimus finds his way to Paul's people. And Paul sends Onesimus back. And he sends Onesimus back with these two letters. And what he says in these letters is, I want you to receive Onesimus back. And I want you to receive him back as a brother. That's a big deal. He's not saying, I want you to forgive his crimes and receive him back as a servant. He's saying, I want you to bring Onesimus back into the Christian community, and Philemon, I want you to welcome him back with open arms as a brother, as an equal. He's no longer your servant. The way that we interact with the people around us, Paul is saying, even on the minutia of our households, even in the mundane way that we live our lives in our houses, it's changed because of Jesus. So here's the through line for chapter 3, and it's why I thought it fit beautifully with steps 10 and 11. Is Paul is laying out this theology that says when we come to faith in Christ, Jesus wants to change our cosmic eternity, and he also wants to change our infinitely mundane. Jesus wants to be a part of all of it. Jesus wants, us, wants to affect the way that we understand ourselves and the way that our lives are on a trajectory till the end of time. And Jesus wants us to be kinder and more gentle and more respectful to the people in our homes, the people who serve under our leadership, our children, our marriages. And it even challenges some of the most normalized abuses in the world. He's saying it changes the way we understand this whole economy of slavery because they're not possessions, they're people. And we need to receive each other as brothers and sisters. If you, if you think you can come to the Christian faith and make it about yourself or make it about who's in and who's out, you're dead wrong. That is not the Christian faith. And so as we work these steps, as we continue to work these steps day in and day out, let it be in our minds, our contemplative minds, that our faith with Christ will never be full until we allow Christ to be Lord over all of it. And we allow ourselves to be made low, and we allow the low to be risen up, 
until we understand that there is no circumcised or uncircumcised, there is no Greek, no Jew, that we don't have to live in brokenness for the rest of eternity, and we don't have to continue in brokenness today. And you might think that your faith is only about what happens outside, but when you close your doors and the way you treat your family and the way you treat your kids and the way you treat yourself and you, the way you treat the people who serve you, that matters. That stuff matters to God. Because we have a God of wrath who says, I will not allow brokenness to have the final word. I desire and I demand recovery for this creation that I've born. That's a God that I want to serve. It's a God that I want me, I want to reshape my mind. It's a God that I want to reshape my life. It's a God that we're about to come and receive grace from at this table. It's a God who changes everything because it matters. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks for your words through your servant Paul. We give you thanks for the ways in which you challenge how we see the world. We give you thanks for the grace that we receive each and every day. God, allow us to leave here comforted and convicted. Allow us to leave here knowing that the brokenness we find ourselves in is not your desire. And that your wrath is not an anger born out of a desire to punish us. But it's a heart that cares enough to suffer enough that we might have mercy. God, as we walk through a life with cultural pressures, on one side telling us to make everything about us to make everyone in service to us, to abuse those beneath us, to be our own little king. God, remind us that our life is not about us, but we have died and we now belong to you. That everything we do is in service to your name. That you demand gentleness and kindness and respect for our fellow brothers and sisters. That you don't see any of us is more deserving than the other. And God, allow us also to resist the temptation to pull away, to isolate, to make our life about who's in and who's out. Give us the strength to challenge those systems that we know are abusive, to lift people up out of slavery and into brotherhood and sisterhood. God, help us to die so that in you we might live. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is always resurrecting.